So I'm, when I was maybe 10 or 11, early 90s, there was one thing I wanted for Christmas that year, just one. It was a Sega Genesis video game system. Okay, you got to reach back a little ways. I'm not, I don't think Sega even makes systems anymore. Man, that's all I wanted in the whole wide world. 16 bits of video gaming fun. Um, you know what? My parents got it for me that year. That was my one gift, my big gift, and I got it. But I got it in an unconventional way. See, this was the, the, this was the time before the Internet. And so my mom wanted to make absolutely certain she got the system I wanted, so she took me to Walmart to identify it. I pointed out what I wanted, and she bought it right there in front of me, like two, three weeks before Christmas. And we went home, and she wrapped it and put it under the tree. <laughs> and so, yeah, for, like, we're talking two or three excruciatingly long weeks now for me, 10, 11 years old. Every time I walked by the tree, there it sat. I'd, I'd go, I'd pick it up, and I'd cradle it in my hands. I knew what was in there. Oh, it was terrible and wonderful all at once because I knew what was there. I knew I was going to have it. It belonged to me in some sense already, but not yet, right? And, y'all, when we, t- when we talk about Advent, you know, Advent is not something I really grew up in my church celebrating. It's not a word I was even familiar with. I'm not sure for you, but it's something we celebrate uh, year after year here at Harvest Church because, for us, it's a very precious season of the church. Advent is a word that means coming or arrival or appearing. And it is for us the opportunity year after year to celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world. For one, we celebrate, obviously, at Christmas time, the baby Jesus born in Bethlehem. But the interesting thing about Advent is we celebrate also the coming of Christ that is yet to come, the return of Jesus, which has been promised and is certain, but is not yet. And so on on one hand, Advent is for us a looking back and celebrating the coming of Jesus into the world and also a craning of our necks as we anticipate his coming again. It's the already and it's the not yet. It's terrible and it's wonderful all at once. It's why the Apostle Peter says, we fix our hope on the redemption which is to come, right? It's it's what Christ is going to do in his return to rule and reign in righteousness that we also anticipate. That's Advent for us. And so, of course, this season, week by week, we're going to look at some of the very familiar accounts in the Scripture of the birth of Christ. But today, I I actually want us to look at a, a slightly more obscure account It comes from Luke chapter 1, but it's not the most famous part of Luke 1. That's where Gabriel, the angel, visits Mary and tells her of the Son of God that she's going to bear in her virgin womb, right? But right in between, that comes in between another story about a man named Zacharias, his wife Elizabeth, and their son, John. And so I want us to look at that, a portion of that story at least, and specifically at the prophecy of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. So let me give you a little quick backstory here from Luke 1. This is fairly well known, especially this time of year. We reflect on this. There was a man named Zacharias who was a priest, and he was the husband of a woman named Elizabeth. And Luke tells us that they were very devout and faithful. They loved the Lord, but they were childless. Elizabeth was barren, unable to have a child, and it was a great... uh, point of grief and longing for them. They prayed and wept and prayed 
and wept for a child. Well, one day, Zacharias was performing his priestly duties in the temple when the angel Gabriel appeared to him there, and the angel promised Zacharias that his wife Elizabeth would indeed bear a child, a son, and his name was to be John. Well, if you're familiar with this account, Zacharias didn't really believe in what the angel was telling him. He, he wanted to know for certain that it would be so. And as an act of, of God's power, but also judgment, Gabriel made him mute. And Zacharias was unable to speak for the duration of the conception and the pregnancy. Until the promise was fulfilled, Zacharias could not speak a word. Well, the couple did conceive according to God's promise. Baby John was born, and soon after that, uh, Zacharias' tongue was loosed. His mouth was opened again by God. And the first thing out of his mouth, that's what we're going to read today. It's in Luke chapter 1. It begins in verse 67. And what we're going to read today, this is a prophecy. It's partly about John the Baptist, but it's primarily the promise of redemption, which is to come through Jesus who at this moment, Jesus was still in Mary's womb. He had not yet been born. John came before him. And so, y'all, what I want us to see today in this prophecy, very simply this, God loves to make promises. God, in his nature, wouldn't have to make any promises. He's not obligated to do anything for us, necessarily. And yet he does. He loves making promises. And, of course, because God is perfect, and faithful, and trustworthy, he keeps his promises, and he loves to do that too. What that means for us, right where we sit today, y'all, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, then you are a person of promise. We are a people, the church, we are a people of promise. We live always, perpetually, each and every moment, we live in promise, both now and forever. And I hope we'll see that as we go through this prophecy. This is uh, what's been called the Benedictus right here. Very famous, but often overlooked. Luke chapter 1, verse 67. And his father, John's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. Now, Zacharias is delivering this prophecy uh, at John the Baptist's uh, circumcision. This was eight days after the baby had been born. The context here would seem to, to you know, be that, that John would be the focus, the point of these words. He's the one who's just been born. Zacharias is his dad. But it's very clear up front from the start, the focus doesn't lie on John, not primarily. This is all about God's redemption brought about through Jesus. And the, so the prophetic nature of, of what Zacharias says here really is stunning because as I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus has not yet been born. He's in Mary's womb right now. He has not yet entered the world in a way that Zacharias could see him and hold him. So we're talking about something yet future. And yet you notice the language tense here. It's past tense. What Zacharias says is in the past tense as if it's already been accomplished. It's already been done. And, and oftentimes we'll see this in the Bible. Uh, Romans 8 is another great example of this in the New Testament uh, by, by the, the hand of the Apostle Paul. Speaking of something yet to come, 
in the past tense as if it's already happened, that's a way of signifying something is certain. It's as good as done. God has planned and purposed this, these words of Zacharias, and therefore it is a settled fact. And we see what God's purpose is, again there in verse 68. He, God, has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Sometimes little phrases in the Bible catch me off guard in a good way. Something little that, you know, could, could be easily overlooked. And, and here's one of them right here. We just read it. He has visited us. That strikes me. And, and something I think for me, for, for all of us, we really should never get over this. That a perfectly righteous, self-sufficient God, a God who has no needs, would visit a world filled with darkness and sin. And that's what the Scripture is affirming for us here. By the power of the Spirit, Zacharias says it. God, in all of His righteousness and perfection and glory, has not abandoned the dark and sinful world. He has not disposed of us to do away with us. I, I reflect sometimes on, on something Martin Luther said a great many years ago. He said, if... if the world had treated me as it has treated God. I would have kicked the vile, wretched thing to pieces. But God has not done that. Instead, God has entered in. He hasn't withdrawn. He's drawn near. He's come for us. He's visited us. The way uh, the Apostle John frames it, he says, the Word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says we saw him. We touched him. He came. And see, in this way, God has accomplished redemption for us. He's drawn near. He's come in. He's taken on flesh and become as we are. Y'all, you'll, you'll have to forgive my, my memory on the details here. There's a movie that came out in the late 90s. I saw it one time in the theater, never saw it again. It was called Armageddon. Real popular movie at the time, Bruce Willis. There was an asteroid hurtling toward the earth. It was going to kill us all. And for whatever reason, you may, if you, you, know, you, you may have the movie on Blu-ray. I don't know. You may know the answer to this. We couldn't destroy the asteroid from afar. We couldn't shoot anything and hit it. I don't know why. The only way to destroy that great big space rock was to send a team of astronauts to land on it, drill a hole, plant a nuclear bomb in it, and then blow it up from the inside. We could only solve the problem up close on the surface and in person, okay? Then Bruce Willis died. That's, that's really the only thing I remember. If you didn't know that, and if you're upset with me, that movie's like 25 years old, that's your fault, that's not mine, okay. <laughs> Bruce Willis dies a lot in... Uh, in, those, uh, in that era. He didn't, he didn't make it through the end, a lot of those movies. Um, can we understand, uh, just take to heart here the glorious purpose of God, that God doesn't solve the world's problems from afar. God doesn't lob the solution from outer space down to us because he's unwilling to get his hands dirty. No, God's purpose has always been to accomplish redemption up close, in person. That's what this promise is, because God really does love us. And so Zechariah says, the Lord has 
visited us. He also says the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. The horn of salvation. That's another way of saying a mighty Savior. The horn being a part of an animal that, that uh, is the, it's the tip of their defense, their aggression, their strength. The horn of salvation is a strong and mighty rescuer who will spring up from the house of David, which is God's way of saying, I'm going to bring salvation from the inside. I'm going to bring salvation from within Israel to accomplish my great promise. The promises that God has made from way back, all throughout the Old Testament. Again, God doesn't lob the solution down to us. He brings the Savior from within. If you're familiar with Luke chapter 1, the more famous account, Gabriel the angel tells Mary that this son of hers, who is the son of God, will rule on the throne of his father David forever. The mighty Savior who's going to accomplish redemption. This is Jesus Christ. And so this is a redemption that's grounded in God's character and his purpose from all eternity. That's why God is pointing back to David here, for example. Because, y'all, I don't know if you've, if you've ever dealt with this, maybe you've heard it from somebody. Maybe you've dealt with it in your own heart. This misconception about God that says, okay, we've got two testaments in the Bible. We spent a lot of time in the summer helping us to talk through, you know, think through this a little bit. Two testaments, one's a little longer than the other. We've got Genesis through Malachi. We call that the Old Testament. And then we've got Matthew through Revelation, the New and it's very easy for us to look at the Bible as something entirely different between the two, almost as if we're talking about two different gods. In the Old Testament, you see God's all about judgment. He's very impulsive with his anger. He's always looking to smoke everybody. But then Jesus shows up, and now God's happy. And we went from judgment to mercy. And so either we're talking about two different gods altogether or maybe some sort of duality in God, and we see two different sides of him, in this book. I don't know if you've ever heard that or wondered that, but it's simply not true. There is one God, and he has always been exactly as he is, a God of perfect righteousness, which means he is perfect in judgment, and he is perfect in mercy, because that's who he is. And this prophecy helps us to frame the nature of God's uh, character in all of history here, that, that Jesus didn't just show up on the scene in order to turn God's character or nature or attitude toward us. This is the simple fulfillment of promise. It's what God has always intended. We see this in verse 70. Zacharias, still speaking, says, He spoke, God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. What we kind of have here is a very broad, sweeping summary of history, biblical history. Most notably, we saw this, there's a promise God made to Abraham and a little bit more implicit in this, what we just read, is God's rescue of Israel in the Exodus. Okay. So back in, in Genesis 12, God swore to Abraham that he would make a great nation of him. 
A few chapters later, God says to Abraham, look up at the sky, the night sky, at the stars of the heavens and try to count them. So numerous will your descendants be. And God promised to bless Abraham and his descendants over and against all their enemies. I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you will receive a curse. Well, years later, a great many years later, we have what we call the Exodus when the people of Israel were enslaved under the hand of their enemies, the Egyptians, and God says to a man named Moses, I've heard the cry of my people, and I'm coming to visit them. And with great power, God delivered them from the hand of their enemy. The Lord even says this in in Exodus 19, from God's own mouth, he says to, to Israel, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's a statement of pure mercy that God fulfilled his promise to rescue his people according to the oath he had made. Now, the big picture, I think, of what Zacharias is talking about here is this. God swore an oath to his people. It was a covenant promise that did not depend on their achievement. The people did not have to keep their end of the bargain in order for God's promise to be fulfilled. It was a what we call an unconditional promise, strictly based on God's character and his free decision to deliver them from their enemies so that they might come out to him and serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness always. So it was then, Zechariah says. So it is now. Y'all, God is delivering us. That's this prophecy here. Delivering us through Christ. And delivering us for a purpose, not simply to leave us to ourselves, not just to get us out of jail, to get us out of trouble, and then let us wander all over again. No, God's bringing us out of our bondage in order to make something of us, just as he did for Israel. God's redemption always creates in us a new life. A new way of being. Y'all, we we studied this at length in Galatians throughout the fall. That in Christ, because of his redemption, we are no longer slaves, but sons. We are no longer bound by our sin. We are now free from sin. And this has always been God's heart and God's purpose. This is the mercy of God. The mercy shown to our fathers in rescuing them bearing them up on eagles' wings without any good that they had done, simply the the display of God's goodness and mercy and glory. And the same is now true for us. That's What a wonderful picture of what it is to be a Christian, to hear the voice of the Lord say, I bore you on eagles' wings. You could do nothing. I saved you. I brought you to myself. This is who God is. And so now, throughout all history now, both, both then and now, God is displaying his grace and his glory through people who are called by his name according to his promise. That's what Zacharias is saying. And that's true of us too, right where we sit. I'm going to say it again. God is displaying his grace and his glory through people, through us, who are called by his name according to his promise. He showed mercy to our fathers, Zacharias says. He shows mercy to us. Now, at this point, Zacharias has not mentioned John, which kind of makes for a lousy baby dedication, potentially. We've got John, he's eight days old, he's just been circumcised. In theory, all of this should be about him. 
And Zacharias is spending this whole time talking about some other baby. But the power of the Holy Spirit is upon him. And Zacharias, he's, he's not just John's dad. He is a priest of God most high. He understands the pivotal role that this child, John, is playing here. Not the central role, not the starring role. And yet one that is absolutely necessary. Verse 76, and you, child, speaking to John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, before, if you go back to the early parts of Luke 1, before John was ever conceived, Gabriel visited Zacharias and made this same promise, that he, this boy, this son of yours, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to God, and he will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And if we read the early chapters of the Gospels, this is exactly how it plays out. John the Baptist, as a grown-up, goes out proclaiming the kingdom of God and calling the people to repentance, turning their hearts to God in preparation for the person and the ministry of Jesus. And we see the outcome of John's ministry, the reason God called him to this great prophetic ministry is verse 77, to give God's people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. This was John's goal in pointing everyone to what Christ came to do, to grant us salvation by the forgiveness of sins. That's why in, in the early chapters of the book of John, when, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he stops everything he's doing, he demands everyone's attention, he shouts out, Behold! the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world. And y'all, this is, for us, a, a bright, blinking neon sign of prophecy here. Because we have to grapple with the question that certainly Israel grappled with and wondered about. What form of deliverance did Jesus come to accomplish for us? Clearly, this is the focal point of all history, what Zacharias is talking about by the power of the Spirit. This is going to be the greatest thing God has ever done. What kind of deliverance is this? See, for the people who are listening in on Zacharias, there's something he said that probably would have stirred their hearts the most. We saw this just a moment ago. He said, God swore an oath to rescue us from the hand of our enemy. And see, surely this was the thinking. This is the work of God's Messiah. This is the great thing the Deliverer comes to do. He's going to come and overthrow the Roman Empire and reestablish Israel as the great national power that it once was. He's going to deliver us from the bad guys and set us back on top. But we know that this is not the kind of redemption Jesus accomplished. And in fact, by all appearances, Jesus did the opposite, right? Think about the life and ministry of Christ and how he came to his earthly end. Rather than conquering the Romans, it appeared that the Romans conquered him. They're the ones who nailed him to the cross and crucified him and put him to death. And so what possible deliverance, what possible redemption can a crucified man offer Israel or the world for that matter? 
The answer is right here in this prophecy. And it, it, the answer is an echo of the words of, of Zacharias in bringing the fulfill, into fulfillment the promise of God that salvation will come by the forgiveness of sins. And y'all, you know, it's, it's okay for us to cheat in church sometimes when it comes to jumping around in the scripture. Ephesians 1 uses this very same language to fill in with, with I think, brilliant color what Zacharias is talking about. In Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul says, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. God's promise of redemption here is not a promise of military conquest. It's a promise of substitutionary sacrifice. That God is sending His own Son to accomplish redemption. That is to reconcile people and bring them back to God by the forgiveness of sins. That's the promise. So how is Jesus going to do that? He's going to do it by shedding His own blood on the cross. Not by conquering Rome but by allowing Rome to conquer him, as it were, at least on the surface, by laying down his own life to do something we would have never imagined. The Son of God becoming our substitute, bearing the penalty and the condemnation of our sin so that we might receive the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. Y'all, why do we rejoice during the Advent season? It's not simply because of a baby born in a manger as if it were just a precious story that gave us all hope for a better world. That may be how some view it. But no. God's promise of redemption was not a baby merely. But it was all that that baby would become according to promise. The Son of God who laid His own life down for our sake, dying on the cross and then rising again in victory over all that keeps us from the Father. And y'all, we can celebrate when we read a, a, a prophecy like this, which is clearly aimed toward Israel, we can celebrate the fact that it's not exclusive to Israel. Because in that case, it might not do a whole lot of good for us Mississippi folk right here, okay? Us Gentiles, us non-Jewish people, because otherwise we have no hope of salvation. If it's exclusive to Israel, then it can't be for us. But look at how this prophecy ends in verse 78. Zechariah says, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You notice the name given to Jesus right there in that promise. He is called the sunrise from on high, the dawn. In the last chapter of the Old Testament, right before what became 400 years of prophetic silence, God made a promise. Malachi chapter 4. God says, The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And now Jesus is called the sunrise from on high. Come to visit us. Y'all, in the coming weeks, we'll sing it. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings. 
risen with healing in his wings. To all who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, Zechariah says, a divine sunrise is coming. A light so rich, so warm and bright, that it will expel all darkness and light our path into the way of peace to grant us peace with God, reconciliation, and life forever. When the Apostle Paul speaks of salvation in Colossians 1, he says, uh, we've been rescued or delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. To all who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, a light has dawned, and we now receive him and life in his name. Zachariah says that is God's tender mercy. Paul says that is God's lavish grace, and it comes to us as a gift that we receive by faith. And so in, in keeping with the Advent season, we can think of it in these terms. The gift of Jesus is ours right now, right where we sit. He has come. He has died. He has risen again. He has accomplished our redemption. We may know him and receive him and live by his grace right now. And we crane our necks with anticipation for the fullness, the consummation of his grace, which has not yet been revealed. He will come again to rule over us in righteousness and grace forever. Advent. It is a glorious time for us to reflect on Christ, the one who has come and the one who will come again. And so, y'all, I just say this as we close. If you trust him, if we trust in Christ today, we are a people of promise. We are not a people of hopeful expectation. If we could just get our act together, then maybe we could climb the ladder up to God after all. No. We are a people who rest in the promise that is fulfilled because God has been gracious to us of his own initiative. So y'all, you, you go back and look and if you want to test me on this. In what we've read today, there's not one command. There's nothing to do. There is simply the proclamation of God's doing that we receive. To all who know what it is to sit in darkness, the sunrise from on high has visited us. And so I just, I want to invite you even right now, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ and in his mercy to forgive your sins, if you have not received him by faith, or, or maybe you're just not totally sure, I want to invite you even now to turn to him, to receive him. Y'all, I'm, I'm going to pray here in a moment. We're going to sing. And I just, I want to very tangibly invite you, man, woman, child, that if, if at any point during the prayer or during the song or, or here at the end of the service, if you'd like to talk with, pray with one of our pastors about what it means to receive Christ, about what it means to be a Christian, uh, I'm going to have uh, both, both Aaron and Evan stand right here at the back of the room by the doors, ready to receive you, to step out of this room and talk with you and pray with you. All you've got to do at any point now, between now and the end of the service, is simply walk back to where they are, 
and allow them to spend a few moments with you. Um, we would love, this is, this is why we're here. Let us walk with you through what it means to receive Christ. We'll have that opportunity now. For all of us, whether you stand and sing, whether you go to the back, we need to pray and thank God that in his tender mercy, in his lavish grace, he did not leave us in the dark, but the sunrise has come to visit us. And now by his grace, we may be saved. Let's pray. Father, you have given us everything. You have held nothing back. Thank you, Lord, that in the scripture here, even in the, the, the months before Jesus was born and laid in the manger, the clear and bold proclamation of what you were doing could be spoken of in past tense. It was as good as done already. You had purposed this from before the foundation of the world. That you will send your son Jesus Christ, the sunrise from on high, to be the light of the world. And now, Father, you have granted us salvation by the forgiveness of our sins. as a fulfillment of your promise. Nothing good we have done or could do. And Father, no sin so great that we are disqualified from this gift. Jesus Christ saves all who call upon him. I pray this, this morning that in this room or even watching uh, on the live stream, Father, if, if someone might call out to Jesus Christ in faith, receiving his grace. And all of heaven, and certainly all of Harvest Church, would celebrate that, Lord, life has come. Grace has come. Father, we thank you that, that in these times as a church, in, in the Advent season, Father, we have this, this wonderful and terrible reality, Father. The world is still very much broken and will be made right. Jesus will return. And yet, Lord, right now, in, in the midst of all brokenness, darkness, evil, Father, we do possess the very light of Christ because he has come and he has accomplished our redemption. Father, let us live in this in-between as those who um, are just filled with light and joy, gladness, and eager anticipation as well. We love you. We thank you. May we receive you, Father, for all that you are today. In Christ's precious name, amen.